What's up? Welcome in to a Monday edition of WFS, the Will Ford Show, episode 132. We're going to talk about the conclusion of round one of the NBA playoffs for one specific series, the Los Angeles Lakers and the Phoenix Suns, and how disappointed I am in LeBron James uh, and his effort in game six. Uh, a look ahead to round two. Some series have already, is that how you say that? Some of the series. Yes, I've already started. Words are tough today. That's uh, moving past that. Uh, we're going to predict the series coming up with some of these matchups. Some of them have already started. So just going to predict the rest of them from here on out. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks and the Philadelphia 76ers started, as well as the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks. So still going to make predictions for them, but they're not pre series predictions. They're, I mean, my predictions for them. They're the predictions I would have made before the series, but obviously you have no reason to trust me on that. So uh, my predictions for them, basically, with the information that I have now, but it's also uh, like I, I'm genuinely telling you that these are the predictions I would have made before the series started. Uh, so we'll take a look at those. And then also a big trade in the NFL. One of the players that I talked about a couple episodes ago getting traded in the National Football League, Julio Jones moving on to the Tennessee Titans. So we'll talk about that deal and the Ford food chain returns at the end of the show with the what I believe are the top 10 wide receiving cores, including tight ends, in the National Football League. So I'm going to look at that, but let's start off with LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers just getting absolutely whooped in game six against the Phoenix Suns and in game five, the last two games of that series was unfair. Uh, we'll just say that the Phoenix Suns, of course, you got to give credit to them. They shot lights out. Devin Booker was sensational, especially in game six. He had, I think, 47 points and he was just on all night. Even, you know, he maybe misses a couple shots in a row and then immediately just hits a, a three. And just when the Lakers thought they were coming back at different points in the game, Either Booker would hit a three, Chris Paul would hit a big shot, someone else w would can a triple, and you hang your head, and then you go back on defense, and or you go back on offense, and it feels like the game's over. And the Lakers were down by as many as 29 in the first half in game six, went into halftime down 21, went into the fourth quarter down 13, they cut it down to 10, but could just never seem to get it underneath 10. Couldn't make a basket to get on get it under ten, and then gave up too many threes, and that was really surprising from a coaching standpoint. You know, in the first half, they didn't double Devin Booker at all. Booker hit like seven threes in the first quarter. It felt like, or at least in the first half, and a double was not thrown his way. Frank Vogel didn't really make the adjustments in the first half. Combine that with LeBron James comes out completely uninspired, very slow. Same thing with everybody else. Anthony Davis gave it a go with the groin injury and went out of the game after about five minutes, which suggests that the groin injury was worse than what I had originally thought. At least I was saying that he, you know, he should have been playing in game five. And, you know, I've dealt with a groin injury before. It was a level two groin strain slash tear. I sat out a couple weeks on it, but I, while I was running, you know, I was... I could stand the pain, but I knew that I was doing more and more damage because it was the pain would sometimes get, you know, much worse. So 
I can't sit here and say, you know, exactly what Anthony Davis is going through, but I've been through a groin strain. So I know at least a little bit. Now, the severity of it, it could be much worse than I ever went through, and he probably shouldn't have even tried in game six. Without Anthony Davis, you know, the Lakers should have been fine because they have LeBron James, but LeBron James decided not to show up in the first half. In the second half, he put the the foot on the gas, but I mean, there's only so much you can do when you're down 29 points. I mean, I don't know what you expect out of yourself. Even if you get it back to even, and it's a tie game late in the game, you've expended that much energy to just get it to that point. Can you close the deal? Odds are probably not. You're just going to be completely gassed by that point. And LeBron looked gassed most of that fourth quarter. But I, I blame him for that because had he just brought consistent effort all night, he wouldn't have needed to have been pedal to the metal 100% up and down the floor every single play. But, you know, late in that fourth quarter, when it, you know, inside the last five minutes when the Lakers needed stops, LeBron would complain about foul calls and then not get back on defense. He would just walk back. That's not what the best player in the world should do. That's not what the what many people who many people consider him the goat, the greatest of all time. That's not what a goat would do. I think the late great Kobe Bryant, and I hate saying I hate bringing this up all the time, but it, I mean it's true. The late great Kobe Bryant, I think, would have been embarrassed and ashamed by that performance, not only from LeBron but from the entire team because they did not show up in the first half. And yeah, the Suns cooled off a little bit in the second half, which was expected. And the Lakers went on a little bit of a run, which again was expected. But there's only so much you can do when you're down 29. I just don't know what else you can expect out of a team. But for me, and I've never been one for the GOAT debate. I hate the GOAT debate because I think we should really appreciate greatness for what it is. Kobe Bryant's my favorite player of all time. And I know he is, he is in that discussion He's probably third to MJ and LeBron, probably the third fiddle in that conversation. But when he died, to me, the GOAT conversation, it doesn't even matter to me anymore because I think we should appreciate greatness for what it is. But for the people that do engage in the GOAT conversation, I think LeBron's performance in game six, you know, I think you call his legacy into question a little bit. It's one thing if you, you just play bad. And, you know, he was playing aggressive and bringing the energy and he was just missing every shot. That's one thing. But for you to look completely disinterested in the first half and then in the second half late in the game when it was still close, you could have given your team a chance, but time was also dwindling at the same time. You just give up. That's a very, very bad look. We'll see what the Lakers do in the offseason if they're going to bring back that same team. I know a lot of those guys said they want to come back. They want to try to keep Andre Drummond which I think is going to be tough. I think he's going to be a little bit expensive. They want to keep Dennis Schroeder. Again, another guy that's going to be a little bit expensive. Of course, you've got LeBron and Anthony Davis. What other pieces stay? What other pieces go? I don't know. It's going to be interesting what core they bring back. But if they bring back everybody and everyone's healthy, I mean, they're they're right back in that Larry O'Brien trophy conversation again. But everybody needs to be healthy. They just... They limped into the playoffs and they limped out of the playoffs health-wise and effort-wise, in my opinion. 
But Devin Booker, the star of the series, he had 47 in Game 6. If he wasn't a star before, I, I know he's he's probably one of the more disrespected stars in the league. If he wasn't a star before Game 6 of the playoffs in the first round, he's definitely a star now. I think a star was born last week. Period, point blank. Maybe not top 15, but top 20 at least. I think Devin Booker is in that conversation. He is more than elite. He is a sharpshooter. He's great. And he's still very young at 24. But looking ahead to round two of the playoffs, two of these matchups already you know underway. The Brooklyn Nets leading 1-0 against the Milwaukee Bucks. And they're currently winning in game two, I believe. Up big on the Bucks in game two. I believe this is going to be a Nets in five scenario. Game one was close between the Nets and the Bucks, but with game two kind of being a little bit lopsided, lopsided in favor of the Bucks, I'm going to give the nod to Brooklyn. There's just too much firepower offensively. Now, defensively, they're capable, but they never seem to play defense. So I don't know if that's a championship winning team, but I think they're going to get past the Bucks. I don't think the Bucks have enough juice. Drew Holiday and Giannis are great. Chris Middleton is a nice player, but I mean, you have three of the probably the top 10 or 12 players in the world in KD, James Harden, Kyrie Irving. All it takes is one of them to be on, and they have a great shot of winning. But if two out of three are on, or even all three of them, it's just really hard to beat them in a shootout. Atlanta Hawks and Philadelphia 76ers, the Atlanta Hawks stole game one. They were up big, and then the Sixers climbed back late, but the Hawks held them off. They lead 1-0. I believe the 76ers, though, if Embiid stays healthy, because I know he kind of got banged up at the end of the first-round series, but he did play in game one. But if, if Embiid continues to be a part of the lineup and he's at full strength, I think the 76ers win in six. The Hawks are a great team, up-and-coming team, but they're too young right now. And that's no no pun intended there with Trey Young. Trey Young's been sensational in this playoffs, by the way. But I think they're too young of a team. I mean, they had a 20-plus point lead in Game 1. They gave it up. Bogdanovich was clutch late in that game. But I don't know if that's sustainable over a seven-game series. I think they're going to push the 76ers. But I think the 76ers, just more experienced... They're going to get by the Hawks in six games and move on to the Eastern Conference Finals to take on Brooklyn. That'll be a great series. A little forward thinking, but I think the Nets would come out on top there. Now in the Western Conference, the Clippers were somehow able to get past the Dallas Mavericks in seven games. I don't know how they do it. Luka Doncic, absolutely one of the 10 best players in the world right now, and he's my age, which Kind of saddens me a little bit, but he is a absolute star, and I don't know how the Clippers got by because the, they were down 2-0, then down 3-2. They fought a bizarre series. Don't know how they got it done, but they did. Clippers and Jazz. The Jazz, to me, are they're just a regular season team. They're a team that's built for the regular season. They're going to win a lot of games, and they have the number one seed. Utah's got some great fans. It's a great home court advantage, but I don't know if you can beat Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. My heart wants to pick the Jazz, but I think logically the Clippers just have too much star power. I don't think 
that the Jazz match up well against Kawhi and PG. I love Donovan Mitchell. I love Rudy Gobert. I love Mike Conley. Mike Conley is one of my favorite players in the league right now. I just don't think that's enough. I think the Clippers are going to win in six games. It'll be a closer series, but I think the Clippers get by. They'll move on to the West Finals. And then the other series, this one, I think this is going to go seven games. This is going to be a very physical series. If the Suns can shoot the ball like they did against the Lakers, especially in game five and six, keep up with that hot hand. I think Phoenix will beat the Denver Nuggets in seven games. Chris Paul will get to the Western Conference Finals. And he very much deserves a championship. A million percent deserves a championship. That's going to be a very physical series, though. If the Nuggets had Jamal Murray, which they've been playing well, playing great without him, but I think they, if they had that extra offensive punch, I would give the edge to the Nuggets because they've been in this situation before. Jokic probably going to win MVP this year, but I don't think he alone is enough to beat Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton. And Ayton right now, I believe, is better than Carl Anthony Towns. I think he was better than Carl Anthony Towns when he came into the league. And right now, he's he's playing great in these playoffs. That trio, I think, is enough to beat the lone soldier in Denver in Jokic. So that sets up a Suns-Clippers Western Conference Final. If I had to pick between the two, if Chris Paul stays healthy, I'm going to give the edge to the Phoenix Suns, and we'll have a Suns-Nets finals. And then the, the Nets just have too much star power. I would pick the Nets over the Suns, which is funny. I've, I've, se- I've seen like memes about this and other stuff. If it is a Phoenix Suns and Brooklyn Nets NBA finals, Steve Nash used to play for Phoenix the majority of his career. He's coaching the Brooklyn Nets. Phoenix has never won a title. Steve Nash never won a title as a player. Wouldn't it be funny if Steve Nash's first title as a coach came against his former team, Phoenix, and he prevented the team that he played most of his career for from winning a championship? That would be kind of sad in a way. Steve Nash, another one of my favorite all-time players. I could see it happening, though. I think Phoenix and... Brooklyn make it to the finals, assuming both teams stay in good health. I would pick Brooklyn probably in five or six games. But now, wanted to move on to this. Will, this will close the show. Julio Jones traded to the Tennessee Titans from the Atlanta Falcons. The terms of the deal haven't been finalized yet, but we know there that there is at least a second round pick involved in this deal which I think is about right for Julio Jones. For the Falcons to say that they want a first-round pick for Julio, it's a little ludicrous in my opinion. Julio Jones is 32 years old. I don't think there's any chance he can play a full season again with his health. He's just been banged up the last couple years. He is not worth a first-round pick at all, in my opinion. Second round might even be a little bit too high, but for Tennessee, who just lost their number two wide receiver, to the New York Jets and Corey Davis, you're bringing in Julio Jones, who, I mean, he would be a heck of a number two receiver. I don't think A.J. Brown is better than Julio Jones, but the way that he fits into the system, Julio might be the second fiddle to A.J. Brown, potentially. Uh, You know, especially A.J. Brown, a younger player, probably going to play more games than Julio Jones, so he's just going to get more looks, have more yards. 
potentially more touchdowns. But AJ Brown and Julio Jones, that becomes one of the most talent the most talented receiver duos in football. Now, is that enough for Tennessee to beat a team like the Chiefs in the AFC? I don't know. I'm leaning towards no because again, it comes down to Julio's health. I don't think either one are better than Tyreek Hill. And the Titans don't have John U. Smith anymore at tight end, whereas the Chiefs have Travis Kelsey, the best tight end of football. Plus, they also have McCole Hardman, speedy receiver. I don't know if that Titans offense can hang with the Chiefs offense. Ryan Tannehill is great. I think he's a top 10 quarterback in the league, you know, closer to the bottom, like 9 or 10. But Mahomes is clearly number one. Tyreek Hill is better than both Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. Travis Kelsey is also better than Julio Jones and A.J. Brown, I believe. Now, Derrick Henry is a better running back than Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. But I think overall, the Chiefs have the better roster. They have the better offensive line. Probably have the better defense, too. And they have the better coach and the better quarterback. Really, if you have the better coach and quarterback, that's all you really need. So I still think the Chiefs are the team to beat in the AFC. But for Tennessee, it makes them a little bit more dynamic offensively. Julio Jones is clearly an upgrade from Corey Davis. Let's not get that twisted. They're definitely getting better. But I don't think they're you know, better than Kansas City or even Buffalo for that matter in the AFC. But I certainly think the Titans are going to be competing in that AFC South division with Indianapolis. I would say they're better than Indianapolis right now, just because I'm not sure what kind of Carson Wentz we're going to get here come September. So we'll see. But with that being said, I want to move into the Ford food chain, bringing this back. Top 10 wide receiving cores in the National Football League. And this is post Julio Jones trade to the Titans. They are on this list, the Titans receiving core. Where? Listen and find out. We'll start off at number 10. This one, it's unproven. It's my optimism. Obviously, we don't know with one of these players since they were just drafted. One gets hurt a lot. They stay on the field. They're clearly a dynamic receiver. And then the other players are certainly uh, some good pieces on offense. But number 10, I think, is the Miami Dolphins wide receiving core. You obviously already had Devontae Parker there, who I think is a, a legitimate number one wide receiver. He's one of the bottom tiers of number ones, but a respectable receiver. Mike Kosicki is an athletic tight end who had a down year last year, but I think he's going to be better this year. You drafted Jalen Waddle. Obviously, he's unproven. He's had some injuries in the past at Alabama. We don't know what he can be, but athletically, he's a freak. And if he's healthy, he's going to be a stud. And then Will Fuller, we already know what kind of deep threat he is. If he's healthy, I mean, this is a great wide receiving core. And Tua Tagovailoa could be primed for a big year number two as a starter in Miami. Number nine, I have the San Francisco 49ers. Again, a team that was banged up last year. George Kittle was out most of the year. And a lot of their top receivers were as well. 
They also had some COVID issues, which every team kind of battled at one point or another last year. But Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk, I think, are underrated wide receivers. They are still very, very young, but very athletic, fast, and dynamic. George Kittle, the second best tight end in football, probably the fastest tight end in football. Very physical. I compare him to Rob Gronkowski at his peak years ago, but a much faster Rob Gronkowski. This is going to be a good receiving core, assuming everybody stays healthy. I mean, the 49ers were just absolutely blasted with injuries this last year. I don't envision that being the case. Of course, you never know, but that was just such bad luck. Does it happen again? I highly doubt it. I have them at number nine. Los Angeles Rams at eight. If Cooper Cup and Robert Woods both had some down years last year, just with, well, at least from a fantasy football perspective, because I had Cooper Cup and I think I had Robert Woods in another league. Love those guys. Jared Goff was really kind of bad last year. Kind of hurt their production a little bit. But I think with Matt Stafford coming in at quarterback, these guys are going to be really good and are, are going to you know, step back up to the level they were again. Tyler Higby is a top 10 tight end in the league. And this is a good group. And Matt Stafford is going to elevate them. Number seven, the Seattle Seahawks. DK Metcalf, who's Megatron Jr. I mean, he just is. Uh, there's, Or maybe a Julio Jones Jr., but a little bit more built. Julio obviously has, you know, way better hands. But, I mean, players just bounce off of Metcalf. Tyler Lockett seems to get to every ball as small as he is. And then the Seahawks also bring in Jared Everett from the Rams, a division rival. He's a good tight end. Probably just outside the top 10, I would say. But pretty good. I like this receiving core, and especially if DK Metcalf gets better, he can be a, a dominant, dominant force like Calvin Johnson was in his prime. Number six. Ding, 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 ding. This is where the Tennessee Titans fall with their receiving core. Now they lose Johnny Smith at tight end, which is why I kind of have him a little bit lower. If they had Johnny Smith, they would be inside the top five. But A.J. Brown, underrated number one wideout. Julio Jones, Yes, injury prone, but if he stays healthy, he's one of the top four receivers in the league. A.J. Brown, I think, is top 10 or 12. Those two alone are great, and I have them at six. Of course, we got to see you know, how they play, but I've got them at six just based on talent. Number five, the Minnesota Vikings. Adam Thielen, Justin Jefferson, Irv Smith Jr. at tight end. I think he's an underrated tight end playing behind Kyle Rudolph for a number of years. Now Rudolph is gone. He'll step into that number one tight end role. And he's a little bit more athletic, a little faster than Rudolph. Got some decent hands. I like him a lot. Justin Jefferson, heck of a player. And Thielen is as reliable as any receiver in the league. Has great hands. Some of the best hands in football. This is an extremely talented receiving core. And I think we're going to really see what Irv Smith Jr. is capable of at the tight end spot. But... Kirk Cousins loves Justin Jefferson, and Jefferson was just phenomenal in his rookie season. So, I've got them at number five. Number four, and I, I 
might have to flip-flop this. I don't know. But number four, I have the Buffalo Bills with Stefan Diggs, Cole Beasley, and Emmanuel Sanders. And Diggs, I think, is in that top four, top five discussion, wide receivers in the league. And was just phenomenal with Josh Allen last year. Their first season together, it just worked. It clicked. Diggs is just so dynamic up the field, but he can make all the tough catches too. Cole Beasley, I think, is the best slot receiver in the NFL. Shifty, great route runner. Same thing with Emmanuel Sanders, a veteran who runs great routes, great hands. I'm going to keep them at number four. The Vikings stay at number five. Now we're into the top three. These are just probably the elite of the elite on paper. And at number three, I have the Dallas Cowboys. And, you know, getting Dak Prescott back in the fold and getting a full season with this group of receivers, especially with C.D. Lamb in there. We never had a full season with Lamb and Prescott. Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, C.D. Lamb. That's as good of a trio as you could really ask for at wide receiver. Dalton Schultz filled in for Blake Jarwin last year when he went down in week one with the ACL injury. Schultz, really good hands for a blocking tight end. Made some good plays and he was very reliable. I think underrated. Not in the top 10 discussion at all, but I just think he's an underrated tight end that no one's really talking about. Uh, Just really reliable. I have the Cowboys at three and it's going to be really interesting assuming Dak stays healthy. He's back under center. What this offense can really do because Dak Prescott, when he left last year, he was on pace for 5,000 yards. Could have potentially won MVP had he stayed healthy and the Cowboys were in the hunt for the playoffs and made the playoffs. But that'll be one of the big ifs or the big what ifs from last year but a chance to win comeback player of the year this year and get the Cowboys back in playoff contention. Number two, the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, I was just talking about this with the Julio Jones trade. Tyreek Hill, one of the best in the game. Definitely the fastest receiver in football. Travis Kelsey, the best tight end. And then McCole Harbin, another speed receiver. Their speed and talent You could argue they're number one, but number one goes to Tampa Bay's Bucks. I mean, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Tom Brady under center, he has every single weapon possible at his disposal. Chris Godwin, who they brought back on a franchise tag. Mike Evans, Antonio Brown they they brought back. Scotty Miller, Rob Gronkowski. Gronk was great in the Super Bowl. Vintage Gronk, not the same Gronk he once was, but still Gronk. Cameron Brait is a nice tight end. OJ Howard injured all of last year. Brait was hurt a little bit too. You get Brait and Howard back. They're obviously talented. Injuries though kind of keep them off the field. And then they drafted a receiver, Jalen Darden from North Texas, one of the steals of the drafted wide receiver. A, there is not a more talented wide receiving group than the group in Tampa Bay. Just so many options, so many talented guys. I mean, how do you decide who to throw the ball to? It's ridiculous. But that's who I have in the Ford Food Chain, the top 10 NFL wide receiving cores 
and the revamped receiving core in Tennessee with A.J. Brown and Julio Jones sits at number six. That's all for episode 132 of WFS, The Will Ford Show. Thank you so much for tuning in and uh, tuning into this Monday edition of the show. Make sure you follow the show on Twitter at The Will Ford Show. Rate and review the show on iTunes. Like and comment on SoundCloud. You can also follow me on there as well. I'm also on Spotify. So if you like to listen to your podcast on Spotify, you love streaming your music on Spotify, check me out on Spotify as well. Might be a more conven- might be a more convenient place for you to listen. Uh, if you, you want your sports fix, check me out on Spotify, The Will Ford Show. Uh, on Instagram, my handle, at Will Ford Show. And then I'm also on TikTok as well. Trying to build a brand on TikTok, at The Will Ford Show as well. And that'll be all linked in the description of this episode, episode 132. And I'll see you in the next episode, 133. This is WFS, The Will Ford Show.